Ladies and gentlemen, your conference call is about to begin. Here is your moderator, Ms. Marilyn Stern. Thank you, Kelly. Welcome, everyone. I'm Marilyn Stern, Communications Coordinator for the Middle East Forum. Today we'll be hearing from Mr. Winfield Myers, Director of Academic Affairs for Campus Watch, a project of the Middle East Forum. Mr. Myers will brief us on our topic, Academics Who Whitewash Islamism. Campus Watch reviews the way the Middle East is taught in American higher education and critiques Middle East studies bias with the aim of improving education. Before joining MEF, Mr. Myers was managing editor of the American Enterprise Magazine, a publication of the American Enterprise Institute in Washington, D.C. He earlier served as senior editor and communications director at the Intercollegiate Studies Institute and is principal author of A College Guide, Choosing the Right College. Mr. Myers will discuss the circumstances that enable academics who indoctrinate rather than educate. Let's begin. Wynn? Thank you, Marilyn. Thank you very much. And thank you, everyone, for joining us on this call today. Uh, I will try to restrict my comments to about 10 minutes, and I look forward to taking your questions and comments at the end of my remarks. Uh, I want to begin by defining our key, our key term, which is Islamism, and I'm going to do that by quoting Daniel Pipes from a recent article that Daniel wrote in which he said that Islamists loathe the West because of its being tantamount to Christendom, the historic archenemy, and its vast influence over Muslims. Islamism inspires a drive to reject, defeat, and subjugate Western civilization. And Daniel goes on in this and other writings to point out that Islamism is a utopian ideology drawing heavily from Western sources and in that way is analogous to other isms that have plagued the last century, century and a half, such as communism, fascism, uh, Nazism, other isms. So when we say that professors whitewash Islamism, uh, what we mean is that they, they misrepresent what this radical interpretation of Islam means, and they portray it as benign or even beneficial, as I will discuss in a moment. They, they misportray it uh, time and again. Uh, to give some structure to our discussion, I'm going to restrict my comments to one particular university and a center there that is the Albalid Center at Georgetown University. Um, there are many other places in which Islamism is preached, but I think by using Isla Georgetown as an example, it will illustrate the problem well, and it also hits what I would argue is probably the worst uh, university in America for doing this at this time. The universities wax and wane, but Islamism, at least for now, seems to be always with us. Um, Georgetown, as many of you know, is in Washington, D.C. It's on the Potomac. It's very strategically located. And that is one of the reasons that Prince Abilid bin Talal, back in 2005, gave it $20 million to, uh, in effect, refound its Center for Muslim-Christian Understanding. Uh, after this gift, the center was renamed in his honor and is now the Prince Abilid bin Talal Center for Muslim-Christian Understanding uh, at Georgetown. Uh, the prince, as you know, is one of the world's richest men. He got that way by making a lot of savvy investments, and unfortunately, I would argue, this is perhaps the savviest investment to date, not for making money, but for having influence. He chose very, very well in choosing Georgetown, much to our chagrin. Um, Georgetown, again, through the Albalese Center, has exercised uh, influence out of proportion to its academic reputation or to its own budget, because of its location. 
So it influences legislators, uh, their staff, people working on the Hill, numerous think tanks that are located there in Washington, and of course the national media. Um, for example, its first director was a man named John Esposito, who's still very much alive and still working, although he's retired as director of the center. Uh, John Esposito was chosen as the director because he was already reliably pro-Islamist. Uh, during the 1990s, Esposito was writing books that purported to show that uh, Islamism is not merely benign, but in fact beneficial and a path for Muslim democracy throughout the Muslim world. And I know that some of his books were assigned reading in the Bush White House, for example. So this is a bipartisan problem. You find Islamism misrepresented uh, throughout the academic and think tank world. And this is one example of it. Um, Esposito is what we've termed a fellow traveler. Uh, that is to say, while he whitewashes Islamism, he is a regular uh, at the conferences put on by the Council on American-Islamic Relations. He is a very reliable ally of Islamists and others, as I will illustrate in a few minutes. Um, he is not himself an Islamist, uh, we would argue. And I don't think the $20 million gift changed Esposito's mind on anything. I don't think it changed too many minds at Georgetown, other than perhaps some cynical administrators who saw it as a way of, of course, getting more and more money into their coffers. Um, but it did give him a much greater megaphone, a much higher peak, if you will, to, to speak about Islamism. So it increased his influence uh, several times over and allowed him to hold more conferences, hold more lectures. Uh, it gave him entree to a level of press that he wouldn't have had otherwise. And of course, it allowed him to hire more people over the years. Among the people he has hired is a, a younger man who is now his successor as the director of the Abilid Center, and that is a man named Jonathan Brown. Uh, both Esposito and Brown are no strangers to readers of Campus Watch's articles. Uh, Brown was in the news just about a year ago for defending slavery in Islam, for example. Um, Brown, unlike Esposito, though, is an Islamist, I would argue. He truly is an Islamist. He is a convert to Islam. He happens to be married to a woman named Lila Al-Aryan. If that last name sounds familiar, that's because she is the daughter of Sami Al-Aryan, who you'll remember a few years ago taught uh, computer science at the University of South Florida. He was arrested, uh, eventually sent to prison, for being on the board of the Palestinian um, Islamic Jihad, a, a terrorist organization, funneling them money, and then in 2015 was eventually expelled from America as part of a plea bargain agreement to avoid further jail time uh, for contempt of court, and ended up in Istanbul, where he was welcomed with open arms by the Erdogan regime there, as you can imagine. He's precisely the kind of person they like to have on board. Um, so what you see in, in a guy like John, es John Brown, as opposed to uh, John uh, Esposito, is a, a decline, if you will, in the intellectual integrity of the studies there, not that they were on a very high plane with Esposito, and a move to um, truly politicize and Islamize much of the uh, events that are occurring there at Georgetown and the kind of information that goes out from it. I can tell you anecdotally, too, that uh, John Brown has thrown out our Campus Watch reporter, Andrew Herod, from several events that have taken place around town. Um, most recently, he came up to him in a, um, at, at an event which uh, uh, Andrew was covering and took several pictures of him close up, 
posted them on his Facebook page and claimed that Andrew was uh, following him and his family around. A completely false charge that led to a lot of comments about carrying a gun and shooting the so-and-so and on and on and on and on. Um, so I, I, for all of uh, Esposito's shortcomings, I can't imagine him doing that. Brown is a, is a, a much more intellectually crude and uh, much more aggressive and thuggish personality than his uh, former boss there, uh, John Esposito. Let me illustrate this very quickly, too, with another couple of personalities that we find there now. Ibrahim uh, Kalin, or Colin, K-A-L-I-N, is a George Washington University Ph.D. who is now a senior fellow at the Albany Center. He also happens to be the chief advisor and spokesman for Turkish President Erdogan, who, of course, has shut down universities, arrested thousands of academics, uh, fired many more, fired many teachers, civil servants, and others, following the unsuccessful July 2016 coup. Uh, and Arsalan Iftikhar is a senior research fellow at the Bridge Center, which is itself a project of the Albalid Center. Um, uh, Iftikhar is the former national legal director of CARE, of the Council on American-Islamic Relations. He still speaks frequently at CARE events. So you see Georgetown moving from having maybe back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, Arab nationalists on the faculty, mostly Westerners at that point, to today employing uh, outright Islamists uh, either on the faculty heading this very important and well-funded center, uh, such as Jonathan Brown, or holding senior positions as senior fellows uh, within the centers of the Alibalid Center, such as Ibrahim Kalin and Arsalan Iftikhar. Uh, this is a, a move in the wrong direction uh, by anyone's measure, unless you happen to be I would argue, uh, an Islamist. To bring this full circle, I will note uh, an article that we published at Campus Watch last month by uh, A.J. Cachetta, uh, a very able English professor who covers this kind of material extremely well. Last month in Istanbul, there was a conference uh, held at Istanbul Sabahattin Zaim University in the middle of almost exactly a month ago. And uh, guess who was chair of the conference? None other than Sami al-Aryan. And guess who spoke? his son-in-law, Jonathan Brown, uh, his daughter, Lila Al-Aryan, and, of course, of course, uh, John Esposito, the ever-present John Esposito, uh, joined by the likes of Joseph Massad of Columbia University, um, who you may remember uh, has uh, been criticized for, among other things, uh, demanding to know of an IDF veteran in one of his classes how many Palestinians he killed. So you have uh, you know, a plane load of American academics heading to Istanbul, uh, not the first time this has happened since the coup, by the way, uh, thereby giving a veneer of legitimacy to the Erdogan regime uh, and taking part willingly in a conference chaired by a man who had gone to prison for supporting a terrorist organization. So uh, if you want to see the, the downfall of Middle East studies in America and the continuing decline of it, I suggest you would be hard-pressed to do any better than looking at Georgetown and the Alvarez Center there. Um, I will conclude my comments now and, and uh, be happy to open the floor for questions and discussion. Thank you, Wynn. Kelly, can you please instruct our callers how to dial in? Yes, thank you. To join the question and answer session queue, press star 1 on your telephone keypad. If you wish to identify yourself when your line has been unmuted, please do so. Please remember, if you have your phone on mute, take it off mute when you are selected to ask your question. 
Once again, to join the question and answer session queue, press star 1 on your telephone keypad. We will wait to have some time for our callers to dial in. Uh, we have a question here in the interim. Uh, oh, I see that someone is in the line. Kelly, if you could please instruct. Yes, thank you. All right. All right, caller, please, if you would like to identify yourself, please do so. Go ahead with your question. Hi, uh, my name is William Pike. Um, thank you for the information. I'm familiar with some of it. You filled in some spaces. My question is, does anyone care? Is anyone doing anything about it? Is there anything that can be done about it? The fact that uh, um, the university is getting federal money would imply someone could. I'm certain the Obama w administration would have put heat on uh, uh, a university um, uh, with a different point of view. Uh, but basically, what, what, where do we go from here um, other than our private conference calls? So I think this, that, that is really the question as to what can be done about the decline of academia in general and Middle East studies uh, in particular. Um, my advice, keeping it to Georgetown right now, would be, and we've tried this before, uh, appeals to donors, hit them in the pocketbook as best you can. It's a private university. Of course, it has a good uh, size endowment. I don't know the endowment off the top of my head, but I'm sure it's, it's very handsome. Um, donors... Um, Sometimes, for example, you mentioned that it was federally supported. Title VI funds, Title VI through Department of Education, not Department of Justice. Those are two different and confusing Title VI's, but mm -hmm. Title VI through the Department of Education does support uh, Middle East studies at Georgetown. Now, they don't rely on that money to operate. They have too much money to do that. But we have written about that extensively. We've done campaigns, uh, public relations campaigns against them. Other people have done that uh, as well, some of our allied organizations. And they react fairly poorly for that, uh, particularly when you move into the area of, of BDS, because there are people there who are overt supporters of BDS who nevertheless are in positions to influence the spending of this Title VI money. So that's one way of hitting them. Um, well, I will tell you that along with some allied organizations, we have been waiting since 2013 for Congress to reauthorize the Higher Education Act. They've yet to act. They did not do it again this year. Uh, of course, the Congress is going over to Democrats next year. That may or may not have any influence on it. Uh, some of the proposals coming out of each party are better than the others, uh, what we can tell on, on Capitol Hill. Uh, there's always the possibility of restricting those funds or of uh, demanding greater transparency for the use of those funds. Something we're going to do in the coming year is um, look into ways that another element of Title VI, which is the, the transparency required for foreign funding of American universities be increased. I can tell you at the moment you can tell which countries gave which universities how much money, but it's virtually impossible to know where that money went. Mm -hmm. uh, it may have gone to petroleum engineering, which is one thing, or it may have gone to Middle East studies. It's virtually impossible to know unless the university itself decides to divulge that information, as you can imagine. Generally, they do not. Um, so I would say alumni, uh, should speak out about this. Part of the first step of that, of course, is further education to the existence of the problems. Uh, one of the problems we always face in doing that, to tell you the truth, is that we are combating a multi-billion dollar education lobby on Capitol Hill, which very aggressively pushes for 
more money for higher education, less oversight for higher education, and you're also looking at enormous uh, alumni efforts being put on by every university and college in the country, uh, which you get in your mailbox, whatever your alma mater is, with these very slick, very well-produced uh, uh, magazines now that have long since replaced the pamphlets. So it's, it's an enormous uh, PR machine that all of us who are in education reform business are up against. That's not going to stop us. I, I, I close by saying, also, this is a long-term effort. Uh, educate people about it. Get donors involved. Get uh, get alumni involved. Many many cases, of course, the same people, and have them demand changes. I and mean, this is this is not going to work. We won't put up with the Islamization of departments of Middle East studies, such as what has occurred at, at Georgetown. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Thank you. We do have another caller in our queue. Please, caller, if you would like to identify yourself, please do so. Yes, this is uh, this is Buncey Churchill. I wondered if it really makes any difference uh, that 25 states have passed uh, legislation against BDS. Yeah, um, <clears throat> I, I deal mostly with the academic side of things. When you say BDS in 25 states, I'm not sure if you mean the uh, as it pertains to university and academic life or the businesses that are doing business with Israel in those states, can, did you, which do you mean by that? To tell you the truth, I don't know. I saw that Kentucky had just passed such legislation, and I just hadn't heard of it before. Um, I would imagine that kind of legislation generally is aimed at uh, companies, but I, really I don't know. I had to look into the exact kind of legislation you're talking about. I can say as far as BDS goes in general on college campuses, that there has been a lot of pushback against it, and some of it is surprising and gratifying. Um, not all, even not all of the professors who uh, we critique on a constant basis are pro-BDS. Um, when the Middle East Studies Association, almost uh, a click within it, tried to pass pro-BDS uh, language uh, last year, of all people, Juan Cole of the University of Michigan spoke out against it. Uh, not because he's necessarily against BDS, I'm not sure, but because he thought it was a, a looked at like the politicization of, of MISA, of the Middle East Studies Association, which is already horribly politicized. Um, so there have been some good pushbacks against that. Against that. that said, um, what you find in BDS advocates on campus, and I can speak to this because we, we have an article about, uh, about in fact, it's out uh, yesterday on this, uh, from Columbia University, is you'll find thuggish people from the Students for Justice in Palestine and other organizations uh, basically shoving Jewish students and pro-Israel students around, sometimes literally getting away with it with administrations that will not react against them, whatever the administration may favor about BDS. Uh, I would argue that, that BDS is wrong because Israel is good, but that academic boycotts per se are not wrong. Um, and I would just use the example of the Nazification of the universities in the 30s, for example, as, as, a, as, a, as a proof that academic boycotts per se aren't wrong. I would also argue for an academic boycott against certain conferences occurring in Turkey, as that, uh, that I just mentioned. I'll have to look more into the legislation. I'm not a state policy guy, but I can uh, I can certainly find out something about that and, and send you information if you would like me to. Sure. I'm sorry I don't know more about it to ask the question more precisely. No, thank you. Thank you very much. It's an important point. I see there are no more callers in the queue at this time. Uh, here's a question for you, Wynn. 
Are there any efforts that are being made by uh, allied organizations with the forum uh, to have their students get activated and to please uh, get involved on a student level with um, student campus organization to organization to try and activate uh, some student response on campuses? Has there been any effort with that? Well, I can tell you, Campus Watch, uh, generally speaking, deals with professors. We don't really deal much with student groups. Uh, there's just so many of us, and it's just a, it's a large mission to go about what we do. Um, we do have allied organizations who have worked with us on the question of BDS, on the question of Title VI, as I mentioned a moment ago, uh, quite a few of those. In fact, we have had press releases and letters ready to go out uh, when Congress is going to reconsider and reauthorization of the Higher Education Act, but they never get around to doing it. So they, it's, a, it's kind of a stillborn effort until because you're at the, at the mercy of Congress. Um, there are organizations that work with students. We're, again, we're not among them. Um, uh, I would, the AMCA Initiative, for example, uh, Tammy Rossman Benjamin, um, has done a lot of data studies with students. I don't know that she works with them directly that often. She's a retired Hebrew professor out at UC uh, Santa Cruz. But um, uh, our, our principal mission is to uh, critique the academic side of things, not the student group, not the uh, student body uh, so much. Now, we, we will work with students if somebody contacts us and gives us information about the situation on a given campus. We've done that before. Uh, we'll certainly do that again in the future. Uh, we've had student interns who have written about situations on their campus, uh, but we are not a student organizing organization ourselves. Okay, thank you. And I see there are more callers in the queue. Kelly? All right, thank you. And our next caller, please identify yourself if you would like to do so. Go ahead with your question. Hi, my name is Eugene Greenstein. Could you give us an idea of what other universities are getting significant uh, Middle East money for the purposes that you outlined at, uh, you know, Washington or Georgetown, rather. Sure, I can. I can at least list a few of them. And again, part of the problem in not listing all of them goes to the way legislation currently exists that requires a very low level of transparency, almost no transparency, uh, for the destination of the various monies that comes in from any country at all, be it Britain or Qatar. I can tell you that Prince Alvalid also gave $20 million to Harvard, which uh, now also has an autonomous center, the Prince Alvalid Center for Muslim Christian Understanding up there. Um, you know, Harvard is so wealthy already, it didn't make the kind of splash there that it made at Georgetown. <clears throat> I would never argue it was a good thing. Uh, I, think, I think the prince got far more bang for his buck at Georgetown than he, than he did at Harvard. Um, a donor whose name escapes him when I need it gave $10 million to Yale Law a few years ago to found a center for the study of Islamic law. Um, <clears throat> we have uncovered uh, monies given by the Alavi Foundation, which is an Iranian foundation that works uh, without any question in cahoots with the regime in Tehran, uh, has given... Uh, I believe about three or four years ago we did an article in which we uncovered about a half million six hundred thousand dollars of funding for some programs at Harvard uh, and elsewhere. Uh, there is a twenty million dollar King Fahd Center for Middle Eastern Studies at the University of Arkansas, of all people. That came about when Bill Clinton was president. Um, that has had some effect. It's given them a slightly higher profile. I would argue that because it's the University of Arkansas, 
it simply hasn't had the kind of uh, academic um, impact it would have had it been given to a higher profile school. Uh, there are nevertheless a few people there who have uh, been on the board of MISA and uh, gained other, uh, that is the Middle East, Studies uh, Middle East Studies Association, the umbrella organization for the field uh, in academe. Probably wouldn't have gotten those appointments otherwise, but it's, it hasn't really taken them too far. Um, and there are a variety of other gifts, uh, large and small. Those are the principal ones. Um, what we would love to see, though, and I'll come back to this, is something maybe uh, some of you will have ideas on and some of you can speak to, is uh, getting Congress to make these foreign gifts more transparent. Um, because now I could send you an Excel sheet, for example, with every foreign gift from um, two American universities over the past several years. It's mind-boggling to look at it. It, it amounts to uh, several billion dollars, but the great majority of them uh, are opaque. It's really, unless it's being given to MIT for petroleum research or the like, it's almost impossible to know what is being done with the money. And that's rather scary. It shouldn't, that should not be the case. We should know at least the recipient's name, at least the center, the department, or the individual. That, that is not the case right now. I can tell you that we're going to work with the National Association of Scholars, um, which is, a, I believe, a, a enormously revitalized uh, organization uh, headquartered now in New York uh, on precisely this topic in the coming uh, year, you know, once the new Congress is seated, and uh, to see what we can do on that. If I can ask another question, do you by chance follow you know, what these people publish or, or do you know, that actually influences people? No, it's a good question, and we do. We do, in fact. Uh, we know them pretty well by now. A lot of these people have been around for quite some time. And what they publish is um, scholarship that is very biased. You can almost uh, count on it. It's going to be uh, biased against the West in general, first and foremost. Uh, it will be, as we say in the topic for this discussion, it will whitewash Islamism. It will generally, if it, if it includes any discussion of Israel, it will be intensely critical of Israel and intensely critical of the United States. Generally speaking, the further back in time, you go, if someone is doing ancient Assyrian history, they don't have a lot of place there to, to make it politicized. But if they're doing contemporary studies, 20th century history, 20th century political science, um, 20th century, any, any recent Islamic studies uh, project, often it's, it has very predictable biases. Uh, and the same is true of their classroom teaching. The same is true of their popular lectures, uh, which are overwhelmingly biased against the West, the U.S., and Israel. And so, yes, we do, we do indeed follow quite a few of these people very closely. And um, it's, uh, the, the, unfortunately, what we find year after year is uh, a predictably biased, politicized scholarship and teaching uh, emanating from them. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. All right. And our next caller is in the queue. Please provide your first name if you would like to do so. And you are now un unmuted to ask your question. Ms. Stuberg? Anyone there? I believe she's off the line now or it's not coming through. Right. Hello. Hello. Oh, there she is. Is this Linda? Yes. Yes, okay, good please. afternoon. I'm wondering please. if you could kindly uh, c comment on the um, 
at some of the nation's preeminent law schools what appears to be the diminution of constitutional law and the aggrandizement of Islamic law, Sharia law. Ah, you know, I'm, not, I'm not a legal scholar. I'm not going to try to bow out of it, but I'll, I want to be frank with you on my uh, limitations on this. Um, the, the $10 million gift to Yale Law School that I mentioned earlier uh, is something that we just have not looked into to any great degree because we deal with Middle East studies more than we do with any kind of legal studies. It's probably something that we should uh, delve into. Um, I know that the professors of Middle East studies that we deal with uh, generally downplay any dangers of Sharia and will almost always claim that it is, again, at worst benign, at best beneficial, and they will work uh, with sympathetic politicians here as well. But, you, know, you really see this going on in the U.K. and the Netherlands and Sweden and various other Western European countries uh, in which they attempt to uh, allow for the carving out of Islamist areas of law so that um, there will be areas in which there are Sharia compliant within the UK, for example, so that polygamy is allowed and um, various Islamic practices are allowed. I know, too, that I've read some articles, and I could not tell you who wrote it at the, at the time, in the U.S. lauding uh, Islamic financial practices, uh, not paying interests and uh, investing only in Islamic friendly um, financial or packages 401c3s and for Ks I mean and other things that would be uh, you know a financial instrument that would be uh, friendly to uh, Islam um, several years ago you may remember Daniel wrote a, a series of articles that helped overturn uh, an effort to do that in Minnesota there were going to be uh, Somali born cabbies who had decided they were not going to pick up um, any passengers who were carrying either alcohol or dogs. You imagine if you remember this or not, but uh, largely through Daniel's efforts in, in exposing this, the Minneapolis City Council, which no one would ever call conservative, overturned that and prevented that from happening. But that kind of thing is certainly going to be tried. You know, there are another couple of representatives now that are going to be seated in the new Congress who are pro-BDS and uh, certainly may try to work out Sharia-compliant uh, enclaves within the U.S., uh, like we'd find in Dearborn and other places, uh, for example, in which um, de facto, if not de jure, that is, in practice, if not legally, these kinds of practices could be carried out uh, so that American law, Western law, would not apply there unless it was forced. That certainly, again, that, that absolutely has happened in certain areas of Western Europe that have large Muslim-majority populations in segments of towns and old industrial areas and other places they moved in and, uh, and taken over. Um, so that I would worry about that at least as much as I would worry about um, the teaching of Islamic law uh, in law schools. But that is a worry, too, and I, I will end on saying this is not a happy note, but what we're finding now, I've been doing this long enough now, that what I've seen is from 20-some-odd years ago when I, we first began doing but at another uh, place I was working, uh, putting out college guides and other things that were exposing the, the PC nature of higher education in America, we got an enormous response, tidal wave response, sold tens of thousands of books. People were very interested in it. I'm afraid what we're seeing now increasingly is that uh, you're seeing a generation of consumers now who have graduated from universities that have either taught them very little or malformed them 
educationally. And what alarmed their parents often doesn't alarm them. And so getting through to people and teaching them about the dangers posed by the topics that we've discussed today is more difficult than it was 20 or 30 years ago. Uh, just because the society has changed, the educational, what, what people have been taught in colleges and in secondary schools as well has changed markedly and not for the better. They are less open, I believe, today to becoming alarmed about this than they were a generation ago. And we can't rest on our laurels. We can't pretend that's not a problem. It has to be fought. But it's, it's, it's something that we also have to recognize that we have, a, I think, a, a steeper hill to climb now than we did 20, 30 years ago. Thank you, Wynn. Uh, we've reached the end of our time. It's past 4.30. We want to thank our callers for calling in and participating, and we would like to thank Wynn for giving us a very uh, informative brief about the troubling uh, en environment that is occurring on campuses in America. This concludes our conference call.